Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do desire to be where you are, to be with Christ and glory. And yet, Heavenly Father, you have not left us here on our own. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. So even this morning, as we turn our attention to the word of God, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Call us to respond. Challenge us where we are weak. And work in us for your glory. Through your word. To your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go back to my youth group days. And I need Clinton Robinson, if you could come up here. And uh, David Chambers, can you come up here? You sit there. Clinton, you stand right here. All right, hold that. Don't do anything yet. All right, David. There you go. All right. We're going to see who can open the water bottle fastest when I say go. All right, but you have to use your feet, David. <laughs> All right, ready. Get set. Go. Oh, Clinton won. All right, so, Clinton, why were you able to open the water bottle so quickly? Because it's easier with your hands. Right, because you could use your hands. David, why couldn't you open it? It's harder with my feet. <laughs> it is harder with your feet. That's exactly right. You guys may be seated. Thank you very much. You see, your hands and your feet are part of the same body, are they not? They are unified in that sense. They're part of the same body. They're going in the same direction. They have the, the same goal. They want your body to thrive because they're both part of the same body. And yet they serve a different purpose in that body. I mean, imagine if all you had were feet. You just had four feet instead of two hands and two feet. Or if all you had were four hands and no feet. You would be hopelessly limited. And I think what that silly illustration here at the beginning helps us to see is that the effective unity of your body requires the diversity of your parts. In order for your body to be effectively unified to do the things that you need to do, your body needs to be diversified. You need hands and fingers and feet and toes and head and legs and everything else. Each part serves a purpose. In fact, that's what we see in our passage this morning as we turn our attention to Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16. 
While we are all unified by God's power, as we saw in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. That's the whole point of that passage, is it not? We are unified. We're one body. We have one spirit. We have one hope. We have one salvation, one faith, one baptism, one Father. We are unified. And yet, we're also diverse. And what we'll see this morning is that this diversity is not a limitation, rather it's a strength. It is our diversity of gifts that strengthens and equips our unity. In fact, diversity is necessary for unity in the body. So this morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see a great victory and a perfect plan. A great victory and a perfect plan. First thing we see is a great victory in verses 7 to 10. That word there at the beginning of verse 7, but. It stands out here. It's, it's as if the Apostle Paul here is saying the idea here is on the other hand. Right? So verses 1 to 6, this unity, you are unified in Christ. You are one body. You have one hope. Therefore, treat each other in humility and gentleness and um, Patience and and, and forbearance, as we saw last week. Because you are unified. But, on the other hand, you're diverse, as we see this morning. On the other hand, to each one of us, grace was given. According to the measure of Christ's gift. It's true that we are unified, but it's also true that we are different. And note that phrase there, on the other hand, but to each one of us. To each one of us, to every single one of us, grace was given. Is there anyone in here this morning who's not included in each one? It's like the word all, everyone who is in Christ has been given grace. Not just your pastors and deacons, not just those who who seem out front to be the most gifted, but to each one, every single one, to you, grace was given. Grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It is Christ who has given this to you, and he's given it to you in measure He is your limitless source of grace. And he has perfectly equipped you for what he has given you. The idea of grace here is the grace that is ours in salvation. You've been saved, but it goes beyond that. You see, really what the Apostle Paul is getting at here is the gifts that God has given you to serve in the body. That will become clear as we continue to work our way through this passage. But the idea is that God has poured out his grace to us in Christ. Not just to save us, but also to equip us. As your salvation is not by merit, so your equipping is not by merit. I have not been called to be a pastor and gifted 
with the gifts that I've been given because I am somehow better than you, because I did something right when I was younger that you guys just didn't do. It's by the grace of God. Those who are gifted to serve as deacons who have hearts that are always looking out, it's not because they're somehow better than the one who's called to teach Sunday school or the one who's called to work in the sound booth or do the coffee. It's by the grace of God. Those who've been called to to clean the church or to mow the grass, it's not because they're somehow better. It's because the grace that God has given them. It's not by merit, just like your salvation is not by merit. In God's wisdom, for His purpose, Jesus has equipped and empowered you to serve. You. To each one, every single one of us, grace has been given. You have been saved and you have been equipped. This is not the first time in Ephesians that this idea has come up. In fact, David Chambers preached a message in this series back a few weeks ago from Ephesians 2. A famous passage where you've been brought from death to life. And yet, what does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are saved to serve. He has a purpose for you. And as we see this morning, you are equipped to do that purpose. God has called you to that, and he's equipped you for it. He's given you gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's the one who has given it to you, and he has given you all that you need. There are many other passages in the New Testament that deal with gifts, from Romans 12 to 1 Corinthians 12. But the big idea here that Paul is driving home is, yes, we are one. We are unified in Christ. We are one body. And yet, we are diverse in gifts and equipping. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Paul here turns his attention, draws our attention to Psalm 68. Specifically, verse 18. It's a passage that we read at the beginning, our call to worship this morning. It's a psalm that is celebrating victory. The triumphant king is returning home with the spoils of war and with prisoners. And he claims his mountain where he's going to set up his kingdom. And yet Paul here takes this and he kind of flips it. He he changes the language a little bit here, as we'll see. Therefore, he says, all right, so this is tying into the measure of Christ's gift. Christ has given gifts. What right does he have to give gifts? 
when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He ascended on high. His ascension, which assumes the resurrection. This is our conquering king. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended on high to the right hand of the Father, even as we saw all throughout the book of Hebrews. That is central to the book of Hebrews, that your high priest is at the right hand of the Father. He has conquered. He is victorious. He has risen and he has ascended. And what is it that he conquered? He led captivity captive. The tables have been turned. Even as we saw back in Ephesians 2 and 3, we were held in captivity, we were powerless, we were condemned, we were dead. But now, in Jesus' death and resurrection, we have been set free by faith. And captivity itself has been arrested. And those associated with it, from Satan to demons to death and to hell, they have been overpowered and they have been arrested. What was powerful has been rendered, rendered powerless and Christ has conquered. It is as if he is marching through the streets of his kingdom and dragging behind him in chains comes captivity and all those associated with it who have been conquered and rendered powerless by our conquering king Jesus Christ who has risen and ascended on high but here Paul kind of flips it he, he changes something you see in Psalm 68 18 it is men who are giving gifts to the conquering king. He is returning with his spoils. They're rejoicing over this. But here Paul kind of flips it. And this conquering king is the one who is now giving gifts. As the phrase goes, to the victor belongs the spoils. Jesus Christ, the victor, receives gifts. But here Paul adopts some and adapts it to show that God's people benefit from God's victory. That his victory is your victory in Christ. Our victor shares his spoils. So what right does Christ have to give gifts, to give grace? His right is that he is a victor. That he has conquered death and hell. That he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. That's his right. And that's your benefit. Because he gives gifts to men. Oh, what grace is ours in Christ. Verse 9 kind of explains this a little bit, goes into the background. 
Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also must first descend into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Who is this one who ascended on high? It is the one who first descended. It is Jesus Christ. The idea here is really the incarnation. Really, it gets, it gets back even to Philippians 2. The idea of the, the kenosis of Christ. As he empties himself and comes in the form of a man, how humble, even to the point of death. That's kind of the idea there in that, that phrase, the lower parts of the earth. He humbled himself to earth, and then he humbled himself even to the grave. Even as we approach Christmas, hopefully you're not one of those who yet is doing Christmas music and all that. You're not allowed to do that until after Thanksgiving. But as we approach the Christmas season, and that's kind of in our minds, do not overlook the importance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God would come to us. That he would take on flesh. That he would suffer and die for me and for you. In order to rise, to conquer death, to ascend in victory, he had to come in humility. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. For the one who came for you is the one who is risen for you. The one who has conquered death and hell. The one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. The one who by his grace equips you and gives you gifts to serve. He who descended, as verse 10 tells us, is the one who ascended far above the heavens. That he might fill all things. Going back even to Ephesians 1 verses 20. To 23, God at work, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And what did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Or, turn over to Philippians 2. And the incarnation is his humility. And yet look at verses 9 to 11. Starting in verse 8 even. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's ascended on high, far above all heavens, that he might fill all in all. And this is his total victory, his ultimate authority, his sovereign rule. He has every right to equip his church. He has every right to give you grace. Grace that you do not deserve, but grace that he gives freely because he has conquered and risen on high. Brothers and sisters, I want to pause here and say something. Something that might sound shocking, kind of at first. We don't necessarily think in these terms. But these gifts that have been given you to, by Jesus Christ to serve in the church, even as we'll see going on in verse 11 through 16, the reality is that to refuse to use the gifts that God has given you is to cheapen the cross and rob the church. Hear that again. To refuse to use the gifts that your conquering king has given to you and called you to serve, to refuse to serve, is to cheapen the cross and to rob the church. It is to treat the death and resurrection of Jesus as simply a buffet where you can pick and choose what you want. It's as if you are saying to God, I, I want eternal salvation, but I don't want to serve now. I want to be saved then, but I don't want to serve you now. Brothers and sisters, you do not get to pick and choose. You are saved to serve. You are equipped to serve. Your conquering king has equipped you and called you, so serve the church. Each one of you has been given grace. Each one of you should be serving the church. They say that the majority of churches, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And often we say that kind of in a joking way, and that's not a joke, that is sad. That is a sign of a very unhealthy church. Because God has given each one of us gifts. We must be serving one another. We must be using them in the church. It's exactly the direction that he goes now in verses 11 through 16. We saw a great victory, a conquering king who's equipped his people. He's given gifts to them as he returns. Captivity has been led captive. We rejoice in that reality. But now we see a great plan. What are we to do with these gifts? Verse 11. He himself, our victorious, sovereign God, Jesus Christ, risen on high, he himself 
gave some to be apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. He gave. Going back to verse 7, we saw the reality that we've all been given grace, we've all been gifted. But here, Paul turns his focus to specific gifts. Specific gifts that Jesus has given his church for the ministry of the word. Specific gifts that have been given to a church to then equip you to use the gifts that have been given to you. What are these gifts? They're really men who are gifted. He gave some to be apostles. Qualifications for an apostle are in Acts 1, verses 21 to 22. They are those who sat under the ministry of Jesus Christ, who saw him in his resurrection. They are those who, in Ephesians 2, 20, are the foundation of the church. But he also gave prophets. You see, Ephesians 2.20 says that the foundation of the church, building off of Christ the cornerstone, is apostles and prophets. Prophets were a gift to the early church before the completion of the canon of Scripture. Sometimes they were given divine revelation. Sometimes they would expound upon already existing and established revelation. They mostly seem to be limited to specific congregations and areas. But a lot of what they do is the ministry of the word before the completion of the canon. These two, the Lord has used apostles and prophets in the foundation of his church. These are gifts to the church that we would say, based on the clear teaching of scripture, have have passed away. There's no longer Apostles and prophets, that ministry is over. That foundation has been laid. The word of God has been complete. We have the full canon. What about these other gifts that he has given? Some evangelists. The idea here is gospel. Those who proclaim the gospel. Those who are specially called and gifted to proclaim the gospel. There are some that are just very skilled in that. God has uniquely gifted and called them to that. There's also then pastors and teachers. And the idea here, I would see this as one office. Pastors, it's just kind of one office. The pastor teacher, the one who leads and teaches and preaches. One office, I think, is the greatest idea here. But what you see in all of these things that Christ has given to his church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers, different roles, but there's one goal. That's what we see in verse 12. Christ has given these to his church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Through the preaching of the word, notice all of these are word-centric. And they're given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. There's something key that I want you to see there. They are giving 
not to do the work of the ministry themselves. They are given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The church I grew up in back home, in your bulletin, as you look through, there's a place where it'll say, pastor, um, so-and-so, and it would list all the different positions. We have this pastor and our youth pastor. And, and at the end, it would say, ministers, the congregation at large. You are all the ministers of the gospel. You are all called to ministry. You are all equipped for the ministry. Pastors and teachers and apostles and prophets and evangelists throughout church history, their purpose is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The church is most edified when the saints are active in the work of the ministry. That's what I meant when I said if you are not serving the church, using the gifts that God has given you, then you are robbing the church of what is rightfully hers, of being edified by your gift. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Well, how long does this go on? Does this just, you know, after you've been in the church for 50 years, you, you make it and then you can leave? And then the next group comes in, kind of like college classes. You know, you come in for four years, you leave, you've, you've arrived. Is that the idea here? You come through the church, you, you benefit from the ministry of, this men, of these men, and then, and then you leave and you go out. No, it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're not measured against each other. We're measured against the fullness of the stature of Christ. It is constant. It is ongoing. This is a lifelong pursuit. A lifelong pursuit with the promise of fulfillment. It's not a fool's errand. God will finish in his church what he has begun. But it's through the ministry of the word, through the service of the saints, through pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, edifying the body of Christ, constantly growing. And note here that idea, perfect man, there is a, a unity here as the church is growing together. The church together is striving towards the idea. Not, not individual. We turn, tend to think individually. That I should be doing this. And yes, you should. But the idea here is corporately. We as a church, corporately, Serving one another, sitting under the ministry of the word, being equipped for the work of the ministry, edifying the body of Christ, all of us growing together in unity, striving after the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
It's a unity that leaves no man behind. You are not an island. We're responsible for one another. In fact, this, this idea of corporate growth, the church growing together, is really seen in the fact that, that here in verse 13, perfect man, a mature man, is singular. But then you flip over to verse 14. This is what we should not be like. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro. The plural children contrasted with singular mature man of verse 13. A healthy church growing together by the grace of God, the gifts that he has given, the ministry of the word. It's like a mature man, singular, growing together. But the immature, it's like children running around like chickens with their heads cut off. There's instability here. Tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. There's an emphasis here on church unity growing together, watching out for one another, leaving no man behind, fighting for one another. Because immaturity leads to instability. It leads to ineffectiveness. And it can lead to worse. But, verse 15, what does the mature man do? A mature man speaks the truth in love. This is in contrast to the false teachers of verse 14 who do not speak the truth. They speak falsehood and they speak it deceitfully. But the mature man, the church that is founded on the word of God, growing together, serving one another, using the gifts that God has given, is where the truth is spoken in love. The truth is the idea here of simply the gospel. Brothers and sisters, you will never grow beyond the gospel. You will never outgrow your need for the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week in Ephesians 4.1, we are called to walk according to, the, to, to the, the calling wherewith we have been called. We saw that calling it's very simply the gospel. It is our riches in Christ. It is those riches, it is that gospel that we must keep speaking of. That we must remind each other of. And yet, notice that we must speak this in love. It matters not just what you say, but how you say it. Do not disguise the truth in a combative attitude, but wrap it in love and care. It is just as wrong to say the right thing in the wrong way as it is to simply be wrong. Be right. 
Speak the truth. Proclaim the gospel. But do it in love, brothers and sisters. And what is the result of this? This church, gifted by her risen, conquering king, under the ministry of, a, of gifted men, those who have been called to preach and to teach and to pastor and to lead, equipping the saints to use the gifts that, that they have been given, as we saw in verse 7. This church that is growing together, speaking the truth in love, that they may grow up in all things unto him who is the head Christ. It's really going back to the very idea of verse 13. That we may grow. This is the key to growth. It's not some big ad campaign. It's not getting someone to come into our church who's really good at social media. It's not just an awesome Sunday school program. It's not a great music program. The key to growth is to preach the gospel in love. And as that happens, as we stand together, as we grow together, as we serve together, as we speak the truth in love, we grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. In verse 16, really bring it all together. Jesus Christ, our conquering king, this is the one from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. Back there to the idea of verse 7 that we are all gifted. We've all been given grace. Every joint supplies according to the effective working by which the pastor does his share. Is that what it says? By which every part does its share. Every joint supplies. Every part doing its share. And what is the result of this? It causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every ministry, every gift in the church, serving the church, equipping the church, causing the church to grow. Every gift is significant. What a beautiful picture of a healthy church. One body, where hands are doing the work of a hand, feet are doing the work of a feet. Our head, Christ, supplying all that we need. And everything is significant. If you don't think that every part of your body is significant, just ask Jenny Farrell. Because yesterday before her wedding, or Friday before her wedding, she broke her big toe. That's not something you think about a lot, is it? But when it's broken, you think about it a lot. It changes things. It throws off everything, something so small and yet so significant. Every part matters. The picture of Ephesians 4, verses 7 to 16, is of a church fighting for each other. As a church, we are as weak and unhealthy as our weakest member. We must watch out for one another. We must have each other's back. 
We must grow together. The work of the ministry is not the responsibility of your pastor and deacons. It is your responsibility. So in conclusions, brother, in conclusion, brothers and sisters, Altoona Regular Baptist Church needs you. We need you to use the gift that God has given you. We need you to serve. Maybe it's a simple, maybe God has just really gifted you and, and your job is to pick up communion cups after communion tonight. We need someone to do that. We need piano players. We need choir. We need musicians. We need children's help. We need sound booth. We need cleaners. We need deacons. We need someone to do the yard. We need, we need, there's so many things to do. God has gifted you and he's brought you here. Use the gifts that you have. A thriving church is not the result of a, of a dynamic leader. A thriving church is not the result of a powerful music ministry. A thriving church is the result of every, of every member thriving and serving. So the question this morning is how are you serving? How could you be serving? How has God gifted you? I would encourage you this week, search your heart. What are the things that you are good at? How has God gifted you? And how can you use that for the good of the church? Maybe you are serving faithfully, actively, but maybe your mindset has been not on the church as a whole, but simply on you. If that's the case, reach out to someone else. You don't have to do everything. Pull someone else in and say, hey, help me with this. You do this. We're one body. Christ is our head. We've been equipped. Let's grow together for the sake of the ministry, for the glory of God.